Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're bringing you a conversation from Fidelity Canada's Vision 2024 event in Toronto. Vision offers insights from our portfolio managers and investment experts and provides their comments on the current market environment, Fidelity's investment process, and our global research network operation. The following conversation is with longtime dividend investor Ramona Prasad. Ramona speaks about the current market environment, how she thinks about risk, and how that plays into her investment strategy. This conversation was recorded on January 31st, 2024. So definitely we know you uh, in your investment process, you have a sensitivity to risk. You've talked recently about considering two things. So one, tying the investor experience to the fund experience, and then also about compounded returns, so geometric um, versus arithmetic returns. Maybe touch on how you consider risk and how you incorporate it with those two factors last year. The reason that my second goal, and they're not in any particular order, but one of my goals is downside protection is because I'm very sensitive to volatility or risk that's in the return stream. And, And the reason for that is when you think about the return that a fund experiences, that's not necessarily the, the return that the end investor experiences. And the difference between those two outcomes is very much tied to volatility. The reason being that the more volatility typically that there is in a return stream, the higher the investor churn. So investors, as you all know, will buy and sell at exactly the wrong times, very much consistent with volatility. All of the research shows this. And so if you've got a lot of volatility in your return stream, your end investor is often churning and just not going to realize the experience of the fund. So that's the first part, trying to be sensitive to volatility so that the end investor has as close an experience to the fund's experience as possible. And then the second part is more technical, which is the more volatility that there is in your return stream, the more damage essentially or the more friction you're introducing to your compounded returns. And your fund experience is compounded, not average or arithmetic returns. So if you were to take a return stream and average it versus compound it, the difference between those two is very much tied to the volatility of the return stream. And so that's typically called volatility tax. So I try to think about these two things when I'm uh, considering any individual security, so typically any individual stock for any portfolio that I'm running. How much volatility do I have to incur in order to get this return because of the end investor and because of the compounded returns of the fund? Can you talk about a few stock examples that really illustrate your investment process? So I've been trying to encapsulate in a a simple way what I'm looking for. And when I think about the sorts of companies that are really interesting to me, they're the ones that already have what we call a wide moat. So the moat would be the protection, if you will, around the business that, that insulates it from competition. Um, and so I'm looking for wide, this is also a Morningstar term, they use this term a lot, moat. So I'm looking for wide moat businesses where that moat is essentially widening, getting stronger. So you're getting stronger against your competitors. Um, and typically industry structure, so the setup of the industry can really help you have a big moat to begin with and then one that widens. And where that widening moat, I can pay a really good price for. So a really easy example today is Taiwan's Semiconductor which is a company that makes chips. And essentially what they have done in a business where the capital intensity, the amount of money that you need to invest 
to get that incremental unit has gone up. So the capital intensity of the business, the business has gotten harder and harder to make chips for a wide variety of reasons, partly because more, it's harder and harder to push Moore's law to scale transistors. So Taiwan Semi has figured out how to be uh, sort of the top player in this industry. And instead of pulling back with higher and higher capital intensity, what they've done is taken the cash flow that they're generating from this business and reinvesting it to continue being number one, essentially. And so they are, instead of, and, and so what you have to do when you talk about Taiwan Semi is talk about Intel, which is a huge competitor to them. Intel has done the opposite. So instead of figuring out how to build the best chip at the margin going forward, Intel has not been able to take its free cash flow and reinvest it in the business. And so Taiwan Semi is just widening their moat. So what I like is when the market gets really nervous about the demand environment, which has happened the last um, 18 months or so, and you can buy that stock under 15 times earnings, which we've been able to do. So I'm like looking at this thinking, this is a business that's getting stronger and stronger against its competitors like Intel. And you saw that in this last earnings report. So Taiwan Semi had an incredible quarter. Intel had a terrible quarter. And it was behind this thesis. And I was able to buy that stock under 15 times earnings in the last couple of years. So that's what I'm looking for. When we were um, talking a few weeks ago, one of the things I highlighted was it's always great when we come into this uh, vision event with a good outlook and optimistic outlook into 2024. And so we were one of the things we are talking about was uh, in this current market environment, how do companies consider their dividend payout? And I know you felt pretty optimistic this year that things are changing a bit. Yes, I have to go back a little bit in order to talk about this year. So in the pandemic, really big uh, event, as we all know, a lot of more cyclical companies had to cut or remove their dividends. And so that's a big deal to strategies like mine. But what's, you know, there's always sort of an upside to every downside. So the upside is those dividends starting to come back. And so that's what we've seen in the last couple of years coming out of the pandemic is dividend payout ratios starting to go up. And so what I'm really looking for is when payout ratios are going up. So that means that dividends per share are growing faster than earnings per share. That is an awesome setup when you can buy that cheap. And so a lot of consumer discretionary, so think like retailers. A good example is Tapestry which makes, which is Coach. They make the luxury handbags and Kate Spade. So, you know, no one was buying that stuff in the pandemic. So they had to really reduce their dividend. And to see that start to come back at like a single digit multiple of earnings. So you could, at one point in time, you could pay like eight times PE for that with an, with an increasing payout ratio. That's an awesome setup. So that's essentially adding valuation to a factor that doesn't have a lot of, that doesn't have a high alpha odds. So dividend Dividends as a factor, whether it's dividend growth or, or dividend yield, are not great alpha factors. But when you put valuation, often when you add valuation to anything, the alpha odds go up a lot. So that's what I've been looking for the last few years. There's still a few straggler companies. An example is Disney. Huge company has had some struggles in the last couple of years. Dividend payouts are probably not where they should be. So I'm getting cheap plus potentially rising payout ratio which means dividend per share growing faster than earnings per share. So I can still find a few of those today. What tools and resources do you use at Fidelity? We, we, you know, we've talked about, obviously, you can touch on fundamental research. We've always talked about. But I'm seeing such an investment in the quantitative resources that we have, whether it be the team itself or the data feeds that we're buying. And then the other aspect are some individuals on the team. So many of you in the room are familiar with Denise Chisholm, who Ramona works very closely with. So when, when I was thinking about where I wanted to go work 20 years ago, there were small shops, there were big shops, 
And what really appealed to me about Fidelity was just the breadth of disciplines that we have and the ability to just access a lot of different um, types of work in order to build a mosaic. So my, mo my process is what I like to call a mosaic. So I, I chuckled when Agnes said um, precision. So it may seem like my process is very precise. It's precise where it needs to be, and it's very imprecise where it doesn't need to be precise. So it's this blending of like really hard analytics and a lot of what, you, what we like to call art to make a mosaic. So what that means in terms of resources available to us, of course, at the core is fundamental research. So an example of that is here in Toronto. Every time we come here, we get a group together. We have a bunch of analysts from, from Boston here today and yesterday, and we met a whole lot of companies. So all last night, we were running around town <laughs> in this beautiful spring weather that you have here lately and just meeting companies. So that's the fundamental research, right? Like touching base with companies. What I really like is combining that with our huge quantitative resources. So when we were first conceptualizing Global Dividend, um, we built, um, I tested a, a huge variety of factors. I tested dividend yield with our quant team. I learned how to be a quant and came up with what we call an alpha model. So if you were to put factors together to try to get a high alpha signal, what would those factors be? So that's the quant process. So putting quant in there and then um, in, the, in the global financial crisis, working with our fixed income team to figure out banks. And in the European sovereign debt crisis, when I was in London working with the sovereign debt team to, and going to meet like the Bank of Spain to figure out what was going on in their balance sheet. So what I love is you can always pull from somewhere to build a mosaic. Denise is a wonderful example of like a special kind of quant. So she is really statistically based, very different from traditional quant. And so I can pull in, pull in her work, which is a little bit more macro, to build out the mosaic. So I love being able to, to basically build this like amorphous thing using a lot of different inputs. So staying on the data theme, one of the biggest themes last year actually was artificial intelligence. So how do you consider that either internally at Fidelity or the companies that you invest in and that are thematically playing in AI? So I invest in mature businesses that generate a ton of cash flow um, reliably, consistently, that often will have so much sort of apathy or controversy, as we like to call it, in the stock that I could buy those businesses cheap, but be able to rely on the cash flow. This is not typically consistent <laughs> with what we think of as like the AI theme today. So a lot of the, the, uh, the obvious beneficiaries of this AI theme don't fit that profile. That being said, um, it's everywhere. And I think it would be I think we have to, an investor like me has to be really humble about where AI will show up in my portfolio, both positively and negatively. I think it's it's way too early to know um, where the risks and the opportunities are in really mature companies. That being said, Taiwan Semi, which I just mentioned, um, is a huge beneficiary and sort of all of the, um, there's a huge swath of tech, what I like to call legacy tech or cyclical tech or not very sexy tech, um, where I invest that when the demand environment for traditional end markets, so like auto, for instance, or um, just PCs, and we've had like a lot of sluggishness and therefore a lot of negative sentiment. When, when that hits the stocks and derates the stocks, yet we know that AI is creating a huge demand for certain types of chips, then that is a huge opportunity for an investor like me. 
And so taking this all into account in your portfolios today, how are you feeling? Are you defensive? Are you moving offensive? Or is it best to describe you as less defensive? So what I would say is that it's not a feeling. <laughs> there is no feeling in, in this business. Um, I'm being silly. Um, what I try to do to figure out, uh, to, to build the mosaic to the extent that any part of it is top down, is I use, I use valuation. So I'm not necessarily trying to trying to make a call on where rates will be or any exogenous variable variable will be. I try to figure out like what is valuation implying, and so um, you will have heard me speak very often about valuation spreads. So I like to look at the most expensive parts of the market and the cheapest parts of the market and measure the difference. So today's difference and compare that to the difference over time. And this is this is a um, a fairly typical quant way of figuring out how cheap is the cheapest parts of the market today. And um, so as an example, and so if you, if you statistically normalize that spread and get what we call a z-score, um, in the pandemic, that got up to like four. So just keep that number in mind. And in the global financial crisis, that got up to like seven. That's a huge number. That was telling you that cheap stocks were incredibly cheap. Today, it's like zero. So from a top-down perspective, it's very hard to, and, and that is in large cap land, it's very hard to find um, a, a big variety of uh, cheap stocks. But then when you start slicing and dicing it differently, so in small and mid-cap land, there's more what we call, that spread is called dispersion, or it's a measure of fear. There's more fear in small and mid-cap. So I'm sort of trying to lean more into smaller names, there's more fear outside of the US. So when you look at that spread of like, say, Europe versus the US, it's very wide, or emerging markets versus the US or versus developed markets, it's a little bit wider. So that tells me where to go hunting. Um, that being said, because overall it's pretty flat, I have to be discerning. So it's back to your question of um, defensive versus uh, more offensive that spread is wider in riskier sectors. So in the, the where the spread is widest or where there is the most fear is in financials and in smaller financials. So knowing that, like doing that kind of analysis helps to narrow me down. Instead of like spending all of my bandwidth just looking across the market, which is not very productive, it points me to smaller financials. And then I go in there and I try to figure out stock by stock where the opportunity is. That spread is pretty wide in energy. It's wide in large cap healthcare because there's a lot of fear about um, uh, end of, about, um, pipeline uncertainty and patent expiries in large cap healthcare. And so to the extent that our healthcare team is really strong, full of scientists and can help us like wade through different pipelines, we can get some really cheap pharma companies. Mm -hmm. um, that spread is sort of wide and discretionary and it's pretty narrow in defensive sectors like uh, consumer staples. Mm -hmm. So that tells me where to lean into and where to lean out of. And so you manage US portfolios as well as global portfolios. So where are you looking around the world? Where are you really seeing opportunities right now? What regions? So again, back to where the valuation differences are. Um, if you look at the US versus uh, developed ex-US, so say Europe, uh, for instance, you will see over the last, um, sort of coming out of the global financial crisis, you'll see a wider and wider valuation dispersion. So the US valuations have just sort of kept going um, or the spread between US and Europe has just like widened. And so when you ask yourself why, um, one theory is that we've been in an ever-decreasing interest rate environment, which has been fuel for growth. 
And the U.S. market um, just has a wider uh, opportunity in growth than outside of the U.S. And so the, the obvious question is, should that revert at any point? Um, because when, when you look at that, it, Europe looks extremely compelling for a global investor. And it's a really hard question to answer. I would say that um, I have to still be discerning in Europe, especially if we're in this world where you know the, the panel up here is so good to go after because they answer all the macro questions. If we're in this world where... Um, the macro, to some extent, based on what we know today, has been what we call de-risked, and there's sort of an expectation of rates not staying quite as high and rates coming in. That creates that incremental fuel for growth, so it's unclear that that spread between the U.S. and Europe should necessarily narrow. So I have to be a little bit careful, but I can still find really good combinations of quality, sort of mature businesses that are high quality, great cash flow profiles, very cheap. So a lot of UK retailers um, are extremely cheap. There's a sports retailer that's similar to like Foot Locker called JD Sports in the UK. That's like eight times earnings, which is kind of crazy because it's very, it's it's not um, a low quality business. It's actually a pretty high quality business, really good return profile. It's just had a few sloppy quarters. And so I, I sort of live for these moments where I can buy something that cheap with an overall market that's like 20 times. So the spread between like any given company in the market is as wide as ever for a pretty good business. So I can find some of those in Europe um, within the backdrop of we've got a really wide spread between the US and Europe that, that it's hard to make an argument for that spread necessarily coming in. And what are the, some of the lessons you've learned over the years? Talk us through you know, great lessons that you, you consider that you're looking for in 2024, markets that we've seen before, anything that's helping you when you're positioning the portfolio right now? Everybody has to find their way. So I invest the way I invest, which is going to be going to be different from, from perhaps, a, you know, the next person who sits here. And so you can't, you can't go and necessarily mimic someone else. You have to really know yourself and find your own way. And when it's, when you figure out what works for you, then you have to like lean really hard into that. Um, and that takes some time. So for me, the the factor, if you will, that I lean really hard into is patience, is being is just waiting. So being extremely prepared. So knowing the entire world, knowing what types of businesses should trade at what valuation, and having that in my mind, and then just waiting for those valuations to happen, which takes an incredible amount of patience. Um, so I think that's the biggest lesson is really know yourself, lean into what works for you. And for me, it's being able to wait it out. Sometimes sitting and not, you don't have to constantly be doing something. Sometimes the doing is the waiting. That's great advice. Hard to do, hard to stick to. We talked a little bit about your background earlier. Agnes touched on it. You have an engineering background. And we talked about quantitative investing and all the resources that we have uh, available to us here. Talk about how you use that engineering background to incorporate quant into the portfolio. I'm really grateful for having studied engineering. And I, I'd like to think that any, everyone who, after 20, 30 years of a career, ends up being grateful for whatever, for whatever their journey has been because you, you figure out how to take your journey and make the most of it. Um, so for me, engineering... I believe taught me how to think critically. So taught me how to take apart something and figure out how to put it back together in my head. 
But I imagine that you could still be, you know, there are lots of people who are successful investors with completely different backgrounds. So what I love about my engineering background is precisely that. Like we went and saw companies last night here in Toronto and companies I don't necessarily know that well. And I can listen to the management talking and just think about how this business works and then start taking it apart like you would you would a machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then thinking, okay, if I were to put it back together in a different way, we met a bank, for instance, and the bank's profitability is not what you'd like it to be. And I was thinking, all right, if, if we wanted to get this bank to this better version of profitability, what would have to happen? And so walking down the financials in my head and thinking, here are the levers that would get us to the profitability that we need. So to me, engineering does that, right? Like it's, is it all that different from, from a machine that you would take apart and put back together in a way that makes it work better? And then the, the art of it is, can this company actually do that? So the company was telling us, you know, we've got a lower level of profitability than we've had in 10 years, but we can get back to the 10-year profitability number. <laughs> I was like, you'd have to do these five things, and I don't hear you saying that, you, you know, you're anywhere close to that. So that's the art part. So, so that's sort of the organic piece of it. And then I believe that it, it has been a huge advantage in building a mosaic. So when we were first conceptualizing this global fund and building an alpha model to figure out how to get the best risk-adjusted total return in the funds, that's essentially taking the entire world and figuring out how you can efficiently find the best companies in the world that are going to drive risk-adjusted return. It's really hard to do that in a in sort of an analog way, if, if that makes sense. Um, it's just not efficient. So being able to use, to harness essentially computing power to look at the whole world, I think was, um, for me, helped by having this, I'm not afraid of like, large data sets and really working with it to come up with the best ideas. So you, you talked a little bit about, again, uh, you know, all these opportunities around the world. So just to zone in, we talked about Europe earlier. What are your views right now on emerging markets? Uh, any specific thoughts on China right now? There's been a lot of news recently. And as we head into the year, would love your thoughts there. So I've been doing global now for over 10, call it 13 years or something. And EM is interesting for an income fund because you don't get a lot of income. You get a lot of growth and you often can get a lot of cyclical growth. They're not the highest quality companies. So I've learned to be careful in EM and I've learned to combine quality with valuation, particularly in EM. What I like about and a lot of things that are China exposed, I don't really need to buy Chinese stocks right now. And that's because a lot of developed market, higher quality, higher corporate, better corporate governance companies with tremendous China exposure are extremely cheap. So for instance, there is a global beauty brand that that the market has decided is completely dependent on China that has derated, I don't know, the the multiple has been cut in like maybe half because China is so sluggish. And so to the extent, what, what the valuation is implying is that the malaise in China will, will sort of be indefinite. So I can buy a company with great brand equity for a much better valuation than we've seen in 20 years as an option on the Chinese consumer caring about this really good growth and market again. So I don't really, it's an interesting time that I don't really need to go take on a lot of corporate governance risk and a lot of quality risk and a lot of free cash flow risk because some developed market companies already embed a bad case scenario. So I like those moments. Now, for an investor that wants to invest in the equity markets and is comfortable with the risk associated with that, 
why would they choose an equity income fund over a bond fund right now? I know you've, you know, and, and talk to us actually about the risk associated with either or. I know you've got some, some views on this. One of the ways, it, it really helps to work on a multi-asset portfolio, such as the, the one that I work on with Ford, O'Neill, and Adam Kramer, because I've gotten a lot more exposure to different asset classes. And so learning or, or developing the skill of being able to compare one asset to another. And oftentimes it comes down to valuation, right? Are equities cheaper or more expensive than other asset classes such as bonds? So one of the ways that I think through this is I look at something called the equity risk premium for to try to contextualize equities in general. And this is not specific to the question of an equity income fund versus a bond fund. Where I go specific on that is I look at the yield available from equity income versus fixed income yield. And again, I compare that difference today versus the difference over time. I normalize it and I look at a Z-score to figure out where are we. Today, that is like a 40th percentile, which is low. That being said, so that's been like lowering as bond yields have been going up to the extent that you expect or that the general expectation is for fixed income yields perhaps to come in and as I'm telling you, payout ratios are going up in equity land, that spread should start to go in favor of equities. So to me, it's a constant calculation or analysis of where we are today versus history and what I expect the sort of near to midterm to look like. So that's, that's today. Potentially, income from equities are sort of trophy versus bonds and should start to recover. And then the other thing to think about is what the inflation environment looks like. So when you are getting income from equities, you're getting a measure of inflation protection, especially with high quality companies that have pricing power. That pricing power passes through into your margins and therefore into your earnings and therefore into your dividends. So you've got dividends that are growing if, you know, if you've picked the companies well faster than the rate of inflation, which is not something you're going to get with bonds. Can you share your views on the energy sector? So in the last couple of years, certainly coming out of COVID, energy got really interesting. So that valuation dispersion that I talked about or that fear got, as, as you all know, being Canadian investors got like out of control in energy. Um, so you could buy uh, integrated oil companies, extremely high quality integrated oil companies for a double digit free cash flow yield, which is kind of unheard of. Um, and so, and part of that was the... Uh, the ESG um, headwind to that sector, there were a lot of headwinds that just derated the valuation tremendously. So in that time, I was adding energy because it was really cheap and similar to the beauty company with exposure to China, um, the valuation was implying that the cash flow profile of these companies was just done. And those are situations that I like. So um, the biggest, some of the top 10 contributors to all of my funds in the last three years has been energy because of buying them at this double-digit free cash flow yield. And what I like to look at more specifically is um, capital expenditures to sales. So that's how much they're investing in the business uh, and how much they're getting back in revenues. And that was at an all-time low. And so when that CapEx to sales is at an all-time low, it essentially means that your free cash flow is going to go like this. And if you can buy that at a double-digit free cash flow yield, that's like, that's great alpha odds. So that's giving you the background as to why the big investment in energy the last few years. Where that is today is CapEx to sales is still low, but starting to turn up. So that's a threat to my free cash flow. Um, and... I'm no longer able to buy that at a double-digit free cash flow yield, so I can buy that at like 
I don't know, seven to eight percent, so a high single-digit free cash flow yield. So it's still interesting, but it's not as interesting as it was before. And so I've, I have um, reduced exposure to that sector because of that setup, that fundamental inflection in this metric that I like to look at that drives free cash flow along with valuation that's a little bit more um, optimistic. What opportunities are you finding in the healthcare sector? Um, so healthcare for me is typically large cap uh, pharma because biotech, for instance, doesn't have earnings, doesn't have dividends, it's extremely volatile. And I started out talking about the role of volatility in my return stream. So large cap pharma has been terrible last year um, partly because, you know, the resurgence of tech and AI, and those are two totally like polar situations. What I like about many parts of large cap pharma is there is, there is no, um, there's nothing in the valuation for pipelines. Uh, so you can, there are some companies you can actually buy at a single digit multiple of earnings, which is like unheard of when the market is, is pushing, you know, um, low twenties. So then the question is, are these value traps or is there real value here? And that's the role of our sort of healthcare team. So um, large cap pharma provides a few things for me. It provides valuation, which drives alpha odds. It provides downside protection and it provides income. So I can sort of portfolio construct with this sector really efficiently. Um, to get my risk-adjusted total return. There are going to be some periods where it, it doesn't help, but over the long term, if I can choose companies that actually do have some pipeline optionality that's not in the valuation over time, I get a really good risk-adjusted return uh, setup. What is your thesis on owning some of the big U.S. banks? We talked about the Canadian banks. What about U.S.? Uh, and the examples here are J.P. Morgan Bank of America, which are top, have been top holdings. Um, so the U.S. banks coming out of the global financial crisis are just, uh, by virtue of the regulator, they are extremely well capitalized. Um, and market share has accrued to the big ones. So J.P. Morgan has done an excellent job of just um, improving its market share with still a very highly capitalized balance sheet. So when they reported this last quarter, the capital looked really good. And there are times I can buy that fairly cheaply, especially when there is a market view on rates that is not supportive of the banks. So that's kind of the overall thesis for owning any US bank, certainly versus other banking systems, is that the capitalization is really strong um, coming out of that crisis. In terms of today, as I had said uh, at some point in here, the valuation spreads, so the, there's a lot of fear in banks um, for, for many different reasons, and certainly in leaning smaller cap. So when I think about how I want to position um, my funds, I go to where the fear is. So I don't mind going into the storm, the sentiment storm, and I can get a lot of that inside of banks. And with banks, I can get very high dividend yields. I can get, relative to the market, pretty okay valuations. Um, and pretty good capitalization. So it's not, a, it's not a bad setup today to own the banks. Two more questions. So we talked actually about Europe. There's another question on Europe. We talked a little bit about Europe, but is this an area of focus for you given the slowdown in Europe and, and any additional thoughts you had to from earlier? Right. So, um, so the biggest thing with Europe for a global fund or, or any region for a global fund is how does it look relative to the rest of the world? Europe is interesting. Um, growth is really hard to find in that part of the world for a variety of reasons coming out of the global financial crisis. A lot of sectors like financial, since we just talked about banks, have a very hard time because of extremely strict sort of top-down um, regulation. So what I try to do um, is just stock pick 
really find the companies such as the JD Sports or the BNM Value Retail, those are in the UK, um, or uh, you know, there's Unilever at times that has a much cheaper valuation relative to other staples. Just find the companies where valuation looks a bit odd relative to the fundamentals. So I'm not necessarily focused on Europe as a region, but I like to find um, the companies that meet my criteria and just wait for the valuations to look interesting. So last question, I left the most exciting question to the end um, because I, I, I love what one thing you said to me was, 2024, it's a real stock picker's market. So return on the fundamentals. So uh, what opportunities are you looking forward to in 2024? So what I like about going into, coming into this year after a really interesting like November into December in the market is what I, what I sort of said before is to some extent, it seems as if the macro barring a shock based on what we know today, so those are my caveats, <laughs> the macro seems like potentially it could be what we call de-risked. Um, and what that means is, you know, we've spent so much time ad nauseum thinking about all of these exogenous variables, mainly interest rates, that nobody can predict. They are very hard. Even the people who, who officially are there to predict rates, the accuracy is really low. And so coming into this year, to the extent we might have a de-risk macro, all of a sudden I can like reduce my focus on exogenous, exogenous variables that are hard to predict and just think about stocks. So this doesn't happen often. And when it does, when um, exogenous variables are taking up less mind share, then we can start thinking about the stocks, the companies actually, with the great moats that are widening their moats where the market is still obsessed about some short-term variable that should improve with the widening moat that I can buy cheaply. And that's the kind of year that it feels like. That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to this year. And thank you for sharing all those thoughts with us today. Thank you, Ramona, for being here. Congratulations on all those great awards. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.